so that we can go. And it's going to be, again, just a quick one-two from Gary. Uh, how does this sound? Fine. You could be a little closer, but it's fine. And Jeff, a one-two? Uh, that okay here? Yeah, it's fine. Um, okay. And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Jeffrey Ford on the Coot Street Podcast. There we go. And welcome back, Jeffrey. It's been a while since you've been on this. Uh, uh, it's good to hear you guys' voices. I'm glad well, to be back. Let me, let me start by offering belated congratulations on your Shirley Jackson Award last summer, which is... Oh, it does be right. Yeah. It's, like, it's like your third or fourth, isn't it? What? It's like your third or fourth of Shirley Jackson, isn't it? It's the fourth one. Yeah. A couple of you... story collections that I could get. One for a novel and then, I don't, I don't know, maybe stories or something. But it's always a thrill. I mean, that's a great award. I love the stuff they pick for it every year, you know? Um, so I'm thrilled to, to, you know, to have received it. And I was up against some really... Tough competition too. There was some really great works in there. Yeah, there was. There were. Um, but the thing that was interesting to me about the Shirley Jackson Award and you is that 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 seems like the right award for your kind of fiction. Um, and I'm gonna I'm I'm, I'm gonna get to the Twilight Pariah in a minute. But um, it seems to me that. You were okay, – this is not going to make any sense for like 30 seconds, but then it's going to make a lot of sense all at once. The, the, <laughs> I've had yeah. experiences like that before. Okay. Um, because I and many other critics and reviewers have described you as one of these writers who has just really paid little attention to what genre is. You write stories that are completely unclassifiable. And and with The Twilight Pariah – it seems you, you, you never paid much attention to genre. With a Twilight Pariah, it seems like you're zeroing in on one of the oldest genres we've got. It's basically a haunted house story, and this is how it connects to Shirley Jackson, because what I said in my review, uh, which is just out, I think, is that it's, it, you're taking a very familiar situation and putting real characters in it, and that's exactly what Shirley Jackson did. You know, she wrote complex, subtle characters. And put them in a haunted house or uh, in, a, in, in various kinds of bizarre situations, and so in a way, it's that's why I think Shirley Jackson is an appropriate avatar for your work. Well, you know, Jackson to start with is so uh, amazingly diverse too. I mean, I remember reading this story, "Cauliflower in Her Hair." Have you ever read this story by her? I might have. It's the most subtle. Revelation of uh, of child abuse uh, that you know in this story that she wrote of this guy who's like a lecherous with one girl's dad. One girl has a friend over, and the girl's dad is like a lech, and it's just the subtlest thing, man. But it's a horrifying story in a lot of ways because it's all right there, just under the surface, you know. And you see it as the reader, but every but a couple of people in the you know that are present are missing it. You know, and it's yeah. a very horrifying story. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess so. And this story in the Twilight Pariah, as far as Jackson goes, I mean, she's interested in taking these horror tropes and you know working them. One of the things I was trying to do in this was to inject uh, humor into a horror story, uh-huh. which is uh, it's a tough sell. 
Well, in order for it to work, you have to have articulate characters. How important, how important is when you're writing a story like that is to try and structure it so that the reader can see into it, but the characters plausibly inside it can't? Well, I don't know, really. I mean, it, with, the, with the humor, it's just the interaction. It's the dialogue. It's the back and forth, you know? The, the reason yeah. the one I got this idea was um, I did it in um, The Girl in the Glass, which I tried to make like a comedy noir. I had read, uh-huh. uh, you know, um, Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man, which I thought would have comic elements to it, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty interesting connection, a combination. This one I was listening to, uh, I, was, I was reading a thing online by Quentin Tarantino about his favorite ten movies, right? And number three, high oh, up really? was Franken, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And what he said in it was, if you guys, I don't know if you guys remember that movie, but he said, and I know this was true about it because I saw it when I was a kid, the scares were real and the laughs were real at yeah. the same time combined one, you know, creation. And he said that was masterful to be able to do that. So I wanted to try it. Now, whether mine was masterful or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, <laughs> but uh, I thought that was a cool idea to try anyway. And uh, we'll, see how, uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> that was the idea behind it, you know. And I think having humor makes the characters real, too. In so many horror stories, I mean, there's not an, an iota. I just turned off my video because I thought. Yeah. That Let's take a step back for a second. I'm, I'm curious, how was it, I guess it must have been a year and a half ago when you sat down to assemble a natural history of hell. How is it when you sit, sit, you know, sort of get to put together a collection like that? And how do you feel about it seeing your, uh, a period of your work set between covers that way? Um, I always, I, what always amazes me about it is that the books are much more cohesive than I ever thought they would be. I mean, I'm writing these stories itinerantly, you know, for Ellen and different editors and, and Jonathan and different editors. And, uh, you know, and then at the end of a period, at a certain amount of time, I collect the stuff and, you know, try to sell a collection of stories. But, I've always been amazed at, at uh, the connections between the stories for that time period. It happens every time when I do one of these. Now, maybe I'm just projecting that, but it seems that way, and it really clearly seemed that way with this collection. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because um, stories are individually what they are, but when they're collected together... Um, it's more than the sum of the parts, you know, and, and that's kind of an interesting fact. I think that's that's uh, that's nice. As far as uh, that collection goes, what really brought it together was, you know, I did it with Small Deer, and uh, I had that title, A Natural History of Autumn, which was the name of the star, one of the stories. Right. And uh, Gavin wrote to me and he said, Listen, man, we got to change the title because people love this book, but, you know, the sellers love this book, but they're saying that title's like people going to see the leaves change up in Vermont. <laughs> so uh, so I think Kelly came up with The Natural History of Hell. Uh-huh. And that 
title just fit it. It was like solid, man. That's perfect. Let's go with it. So that really helped the book, and 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 that that really ties the book together too, in a way. It does, but it's 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 it seems to me a very diverse collection. Of course, you're, they're all pretty diverse, uh, but uh, there are some stories that are completely, I guess, in the Shirley Jackson, somewhere between Shirley Jackson and Kafka, maybe. And then there are stories that are very timely and and scary in a kind of contemporary, almost Sinclair Lewis satirical way. I'm thinking of the story Blood Drive, for example, which is really a a gun story, I guess. Well, Blood Drive was about at the end of the Bush era. I was writing that story. I, I was really, you know, I'm telling you, with Trump now, it's just terrible, you know? But yeah. at the end of the Bush era, I was feeling kind of like, I was feeling kind of the same way, like really fucking fed up, you know? So, uh, you know, a lot of this gun stuff is ridiculous. And they were talking about, you know, guns in schools and Listen, I was a teacher for a long time. I know, like, the, the maturity level of students at a community. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not only that, but half the teachers are insane anyway. I was sitting in the with my students, and, I, and, I, and we, did, we do the news all the time in my class. We spend oh, okay. Thursday on the news. I still do it, you know, on current events and controversial issues. So did one you? day... It brought up that they were going to, you know, they were going to uh, uh, legalize guns on college campuses. And I, we started talking about, like, what would that be like? And the way that the classroom was set up is it set up with me at the head, and it was like a rectangle. Uh-huh. So I mean, we started talking about what would it be like if we were all packing heat and somebody did something untoward and everybody drew. There wouldn't be a soul left in the room after the smoke cleared, you know what I mean? <laughs> Be like a spaghetti western, so that gave the students gave me the idea for that. And did you ever? Te- I went. Did, through, you know. Yeah. Did you ever teach one of your stories? Did you ever teach that story to your students, for example? No, I never taught any of my uh, colleagues of mine teach my stories all the time. You know, oh. uh, back in Jersey, they still teach them, uh, but I never taught one of my stories. I mean, that story, um, I've read it at college campuses and stuff, and. Uh, you know, one uh, student uh, asked me a really interesting question about that story. He mm-hmm. said, what time period is this from? Because he said it's the, the laws and stuff and the, and the guns and everything seem very contemporary. But the romance between the two girls, even though it's two women, you know, and, and the setup of the school and everything seem like something from the past. Like at the end when they have that dance in the gym, you know. Huh. So that was kind of weird because it kind of encompasses my experience in school and what's going on now, too. He pointed something out to me that was psychologically very interesting to me. Which was? Just the fact that I was seeing high school the way I experienced it, plus I was trying to make it seem like it's contemporary. Uh, yeah. And both of those things are fused together in Well, I mean, it, it must remain an enormous challenge to have some kind of fresh perspective on that when you've been writing for as long as you have and are as old as you are. I mean, you, you can't be completely in step with exactly what someone who's in their late teens or 20s are doing today, can you? No. I mean, and this is the, the 
this is the beauty of what I see around me with all of these younger writers. I mean, they're, still, they're doing stories that I could never conceive of, you know, uh, and that's fantastic. But I'm also doing stories that they could never conceive of. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, uh, but that's, uh, yeah, that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I started what, like, I mean, my first book was 1988. Before that, I guess I started my first short story in MSS. John Gardner published it. It was like 81, 1981. So I've been at it that long. Or if you think, you know, as long as I've been quote unquote professionally writing, that would have been 97. Right. You studied with John Gardner, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. He was in your, what, your, was it an MFA program or just an, an MA program? Oh, they didn't even have MFA program. <laughs> they might have been two in the country, you know. But, he, yeah, right. he was a great teacher. I mean, uh, I bring him, when I started, I brought him, like, 30-page stories handwritten in pencil, and I'd slip them under his door. <laughs> read them and go through them and talk to me about them. And, uh, and then one day he told me, look, like, I'm not going to read this shit anymore unless you type it up. <laughs> and that's just what she did, and she had an electric typewriter. Well, it, it always struck me that he was unusual in that generation of writers. And he was you know, he was in a generation with uh, Barth and, and, and Heller and that. But he seemed to be in his own fiction. And from what I heard from my fellow reviewer, Russell Lutzen, who studied with him at Southern Illinois, that he was – much more amenable to fantastic literature than most literary figures were at that time. He was much more what? I'm sorry, much more Gary. friendly. Much more friendly toward fantastic literature and Actually, fabulous. Right? That I came around like in the in the uh, like late seventies, early eighties. Uh-huh. I mean, literature was fantastic. It was uh, it was you know Kinchin. Uh, it was Barth. It was Barthelmey. It was Angela Carter, it was right. Gardner, it was Vonnegut, you know what I mean? So I mean, when people say to me, like, fantasy isn't literature, it doesn't make any sense to me. Also, at the same time, you had uh, the South Americans, you know, like you had the magic realism, Garcia Marquez. And Garcia Marquez, yeah. Those guys coming around. I mean, that stuff was, that stuff was right, you know, fantastic stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's the stuff I read when I was in school, you know? Well, did you read that stuff uh, more than you read sort of the classic genre writers like Fritz Leiber or Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I didn't read any of that stuff. I mean, I read Lovecraft, I got to tell you, puts me completely to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of reading Lovecraft is a hell of a lot better than actually having to read Lovecraft. <laughs> That's the way to put it. Hey, look, you're talking to someone who had to pay a Lovecraft expert to read a story for him, so... You know what? You know, I can't even get to the point of moral outrage at his racism because I fall asleep before any story's finished. (laughs) (laughs) I know people love him and it's a big deal now, but... Um, I'm, I'm curious, looking back, are you surprised at how prolific you've been able to be. I mean, you've published something like, a, what, 130 short stories and eight novels. Um, it's a fair amount amount of work. I mean, would you have thought when you started out that, that that you would be able to be as 
prolific and as flexible about what you do as you are? Uh, no, no. I, I was happy. To, I, my goal was to get one story published. That's really what I wanted to do. I mean, I just wanted to prove that I could do it. You know, and, and once things started to take off and I saw, you know, how it worked and, uh, you know, studied with Gardner and understood, like, the extent of what revision meant. And, uh, you know, then once I was into it, I, I was just, like, consumed by it. You know what I mean? I just, I'm still the same way. I'm still, um, it's still everything. It's so much to me. It means so much to me to sit down and write a story and uh, enjoy it. It's just nothing like it, you know? Well, then, I remember. Uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say. Well, then, what is your writing day or or life like? I mean, how much time do you spend writing? Well, I sit down every day, whether I write or not. You know, and uh, there was a period of time where I was having a lot of personal problems, not my own, but with some, you know, the family and stuff. And uh, that was very difficult. But I sat down anyway, even if I didn't write anything, I would sit there. And, uh, you know, for a certain period of time. Uh, and then, I, you know, things got better, and I was writing more. But I always wrote stories. I always, like, published stories and stuff. Um, so, you know, I get up in the morning. I used to write late at night. But my father-in-law, who's a cartoon, was a cartoonist, uh, he did Heathcliff, you know? Hmm. He, he told me once, the night is a cruel mistress when you get old. <laughs> <laughs> And I take some time off in the afternoon, have lunch, and I'll, I might come back. And then, I, you know, stop around 3 o'clock. And then the days I teach, I teach, and I sometimes I work at night. And yeah. And I write a lot of stuff that never goes out, you know. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's it as well. I mean, with 130 stories, I mean, it suggests as though everything that you write, you sell. Everything that you start, you finish. I mean, is that how it is? I mean, do, no. do you have a vast amount of stuff that's never really found a home? I have stuff. I mean, I have pile drawers full of stuff, but I mean, you know, if I intend to sell something, then I usually sell it. Yeah. I think I've, I think I've been turned down on stories maybe twice in the last, I don't know, 20 years now. And I think both of them were by Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I said she, she turned me down on two stories in like the last 20 years, and she was right up. <laughs> Well, I suppose, I mean, one thing that would be worth touching on is you sp you, you teach writing at uh, Wesleyan, right? How important to your writing is your, you know, is, is your role as a teacher and as an educator? What do you take out of it into your own writing experience? Well, I mean, you know, I've taught, like, all kinds of different classes. So I had a story a couple of years ago, a terror about Emily Dickinson, you know, uh, meeting mm -hmm. And um, that came right out of my teaching of literature. Uh, you know, 25 years of teaching Emily Dickinson and reading all the biographical stuff about her and everything, and all, you know, uh, different essays about her. That went directly into that. Um, I, I taught a class for people with learning disabilities in Jersey for years, and that was a great class. I, I learned a lot from that because these people had like issues of writing, sometimes dyslexia, different things, you know, and they would try to circumvent those problems they had. And in those circumventions of the problems, there were just some amazingly beautiful, uh, you know, uh, 
creations of how to write a story that wasn't a normal way to write a story. So I picked up a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of hints and a lot of tricks from those things that I saw in those stories. You know, and whatever, really, all that stuff, you know, feeds into it. I don't think it's that consciously while teaching. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite stories of yours, which is a few years old now, is it seems to me is almost completely autobiographical. It's the one called The Honeyed Knot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's and true. That's a true story. I mean, the parts, parts that's supposedly historical in it is made up. But the thing about the girl who was a witch who was in my class, uh-huh. spell on me, I, that was all true. I mean, she used to sit in the back of the room and told me she was a witch, and at the time I had this ear thing, I had a bad ear problem, I couldn't hear, my ear was clogged up, you know, uh-huh. uh, I told her about it one day when I was talking to her, and she said, oh, I could fix that for you, I was like, really, and she goes, yeah, I'll put it. <laughs> I got I could do on that, and I thought, you know, I just went with it, I figured, what the fuck, right, so she came and said, I'm going to come in next week, but don't say anything to me, I'm going to leave early. Came in and she was wearing like a white, like uh, white frilly dress, like you know, like almost like a kid's communion dress. And she sat in the back of the room. And then before the class was over, she got up and left. And I swear to Christ, that ear thing cleared up in like the next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a wild story, but it's true. I mean, that's a true story, mostly. There's other stuff that goes on in that that's crazy, too. Well, it, it's, that's what I mean. Part of it sounds, I mean, it's utterly convincing. And there was one of the stories, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the title. One of the stories in the Natural History of Hell starts with you at a science fiction convention. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's Rocket Ship to Hell. Rocket Ship to Hell, right. Yeah, I wrote that for Ann Vandermeer for uh, this, the anniversary of the rocket at Tor. Uh-huh. I don't know how many years anniversary it was, yeah. But yeah, it starts out where I'm wandering around that. You know what I noticed with that, Gary, is, I, you know, just the other day, I guess uh, Jerry Purnell died, right? Uh, yeah. The whole time is I remember from when I went to the library as a kid and I saw all the spines with the little rocket ship at the bottom. That indicated they were science fiction. But I must have read some of his books, you know, like him and Al Clement. And, uh, yeah. You know, I met some of these guys. Harry Harrison I actually met and Clement I met. And they were cool guys. But uh, Rocket Ship to Hell is basically about, I'm, I was thinking about the fact that I'm right in the middle now. I mean, at that time, I was right between those older guys, you know, like those guys, and the newer people that were coming in. It's right. It's an interesting situation to be in, to be able to look back and to look forward and see, you know, the genre in that way. One of the things that I noticed, although one of the things I liked about The Twilight Pariah is that the characters are interesting enough. You want to know, you want to follow their stories, even if they're minor characters. And the, the narrator, Henry, has a father who, I guess, is obsessively reading these old paperbacks that he has from the 50s. Like you're talking about Al Clement and, and yeah. well, probably Jerry Purnell and that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I, I just really wanted to know what paperbacks he was reading. What I had in mind, what I saw in my mind's eye. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, like Space Corps by Gordon Dixon, uh, Martians Go Home by, you know, Frederick Brown. Frederick Brown was very funny. Yeah, I mean, it was cool. Yeah, that was, he was pretty funny, yeah. 
I remember that book, uh, Martians Go Home, I got it out of the library, and there was like some vague hint of sex in the first chapter. I was like, (laughs) So you were reading science fiction as a kid. I did. I read more of it when I was a kid than I read when I got older, to tell you the truth. But I mean, I always picked up stuff like, I pick up Arthur Clarke's like 2001 and, you know, every while. I mean, I couldn't read like uh, Asimov, just bored the hell out of me. And, you know, nothing against him, but, you know, I just couldn't read it. I feel the same way about Ursula Le Guin. I can't read her hmm. stuff. Very distant to me. You know, it's very, it seems like it's very distant. Uh, I want to read that. I'm going to read uh, Earthsea when Vest uh, gets done doing the illustrations for it. Yeah, oh, those look great. Can, you know? Uh, but uh, also, um, you know, Heinlein, which I know Jonathan talks a lot about the uh, juveniles and some yeah. of the other books. And really, so I'm sure they're fine books. It's just that I just can't, I don't connect with them, you know? Well, so I'm surprised that many people still connect with them in many ways. I mean, because they are books of a particular period. I mean, they were written back in the, in the 50s and early 60s, and they really do sit in that time. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, yeah. you've been writing since the, sort of the early '80s. Is there a part of the genre that you feel most a part of? A generation of the genre you most feel most part of, or do you feel like you're doing this sort of out in the middle of the cornfields by yourself? No, you know, it's funny you should ask. That. I was just thinking about this the other day. I feel really kind of like an outsider. You know, I'm not really a horror writer. I'm not really a fantasy writer definitely not a science fiction writer. Uh, so I don't know what the hell I do. And you know, Jonathan, most people don't know what the hell I do. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what, one response to that as long as the mystery writers think you deserve an Edgar and the fantasy readers think you deserve a, a world fantasy award, I would go with it. Oh yeah, I'd go with it. I mean, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with any of those genres or any mix of genres. Or anything I don't even write. I have nothing against people, you know, romance fiction, whatever the hell you want. I have no, I really don't look down on anything. Uh, tie ins, God bless you. You make more money than I have. <laughs> but, and, and, and you're being published by Small Beer, which is sort of, sort of, their niche is something like unclassifiable writers. I mean, they've done, you know, they certainly started starting with Kelly Link's uh, books and, uh, I, I think they did. No, did they? No, they did not do Map of Dreams. But nevertheless, Mary Rickard is kind of in your cohort, I think. Oh, uh, I love Mary stuff, yeah. And, and Kelly, I mean, you know. Yeah. Guys, I, I really, uh, I, I love their stuff. Andy Duncan's another writer. Yeah. That, that right. I feel a real kinship for it, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's people around that are doing this kind of stuff, but it's not, I don't want to see mainstream. I'm not, it's not against the mainstream, but it's just like I know I'm not in, in solidly in any of those situations. You know, I'm curious. Do you think that in a different time, when there was a more robust mainstream short f- fiction market, you know, say back back in the days of the pulps, that that might have been where you and some of the writers that you've mentioned would naturally have been drawn to, or do you think that you were always going to be some kind of a genre writer? Well, I always liked the fantastic. I mean, yeah. I always liked what you could do. I always liked the things you could say beyond what you could say in realism with it, you know? But I mean, like, 
Shirley Jackson is a great example. I feel a kinship to her. And I think Gary's essay, really, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, the New Yorker, how it was, it published, you know, uh, Bradbury and Jackson and those people. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm of that caliber, but I love that sensibility, at least, you know? I think it wasn't just that they – thanks for mentioning that. Uh, but, yeah, Amelia Beamer and I did some research and found that – Here's a home for me here because I think, you know, uh, I felt like at home in that what you were saying in that essay. Well, I'm glad uh, because one of the things that I was discovering when we started reading back, not just the New Yorker but Harper's and the Atlantic and the other literary journals and the writers – uh, there, there, there's a terrific ghost story by Truman Capote. There are wonderful fantasy stories by John Cheever. In other words, if you were a short story writer back in the 40s, fantastic fiction was simply one of the many things you did. Well, it's like, you know, it's like Dickens and those guys. All right, Christmas time, write a ghost story. Right. You know, or, or Henry James, it's like write a ghost story. And what do they write? Something like Turn of the Screw or right. Christmas Carol. Some amazing piece that's like you know it's a ghost story, yeah. So one of the things, the, the other, the other thing which uh, which you've done is you, um, you, you you actually I think I think one of the world fan either a world fantasy or a Shirley Jackson award was for the story Botchtown, which basically became part of the novel The Shadow Year. Do you sometimes use your short stories as ways of working out parts of novels? Yeah, I do, but it's never been. <clears throat> That's an example where it was pretty directly, you know, connected to it. Uh-huh. I used to work out style sometimes. Like when I wrote the Physiognomy, there was a story I wrote that appeared in Space and Time. You know that magazine? Mm-hmm. You know, uh-huh. Time. Uh, it was called The Delicate. I think it's in uh, Jeff reprinted it in the Weird. Uh, but it allowed me to work out the style of the of those novels before I sat down to write them. So sometimes uh-huh. I like that, but uh, it's never that obvious as with the uh, Botchtown, you know? Well, it still was, a, it was a terrific story, and it fit perfectly into the novel, so I assumed, I'd always assumed that this story was a portion of a novel in progress, and then I, I was confused about it, because I thought, well, no, it works perfectly fine as a story, too, so which is it? Well, you know what happened with that book was I wrote, um, I wrote that much of it, and then I couldn't write the rest of it. And the ah. reason why is because um, they did, uh, my editor told me, like, uh, my sister Dolores was in it, and she was born with a hole in her heart. And so she was you know, at this hospital and stuff. And I was trying to work that into the book. And it was just too complicated, you know? And uh, she said, you got to cut that part, because it's about the fiction, really, which I agree ah. with. Uh, but I couldn't really continue without her, basically, for a while. So I stopped, and I wrote The Girl in the Glass, and then I went back to it. Oh, what okay. I really was Botchtown, you know, that part of it. Right. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. It, it makes me think, again, it brings us back to the Twilight Pariah, because uh, once you look at the interesting characters and their backstories and, and, and a sort of implied forward story, at the end of it, uh, it's a it's it's a very well shaped novella, but it could easily have been a novel, couldn't it? 
Well, a lot of people say that a bit about it. They, they're saying, like, I wish it had been a novel and so forth. And a guy interviewed me for the uh, Los Angeles Library, public library, and he said, um, you know, I wish, I wish it had been a longer, you know, I wish it had been uh, a longer book. Why did you, you know, why, did, why was it only a novella? And my answer was, because that's what the public public <laughs> Well, that actually, like a professional. <laughs> that actually touches on on a question that I, I wanted to ask. Because you write a lot of short fiction, but it's been a while since there was a new novel. You didn't get that? Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say it's it's been a while since. There's been a new novel. Gary was saying, uh, as you were saying, as a professional writer, you write to what the editor sort of or the publisher commissions, and that's why you've written a novella here or whatever else. Um, is that why you keep writing so much short fiction and why it's been a while since there's been a new novel? Because primarily you're being asked for more short fiction and it's keeping you from writing novels? No, no. There, there was a situation in my life, which I don't want to go into, but uh, that precluded me from writing longer works because it was just so intense. Yeah. But I was able to... But I have, have a book coming out from uh, Morrow HarperCollins next year that's done. I'm just editing it now uh, called uh, Ahab's Return or The Last Voyage. <laughs> well, that sounds... It's a, would you call it a fantasy novel? What? What is it, John? <laughs> what was that noise? Go ahead. Hello? Gary was asking if you would call Ahab's Return a fantasy novel. Oh, it's definitely fantastic, yeah. I mean, Bartleby shows up as like the zombie hired hitman. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it's definitely fantasy. I mean, well, does, is, does, does, Ish, does Ishmael show up? Well, here's the thing. The whole conceit is that Ishmael is the one who wrote the book. I mean, it's his voice throughout the entire book. And a guy who works with him at the Penny Press in New York, uh-huh. right? uh, he, Ishmael, when he gets back from the Moby Dick voyage, becomes a copy editor at this place called the Gorgon's Mirror. <laughs> and, and this guy who's the writer writes like outlandish stories, like we find the Weekly World Star now and stuff, you know, like the Mermaid of Hellgate and stuff like that. Burials mm-hmm. and stuff like those kind of things. He knows, he knew Ishmael, and, you know, Ishmael had shown him drafts of Moby Dick before it was published. And then he splits from the the uh, magazine. And one night, this guy, Harrow, he can't think of an idea, and his editor's on his ass to, like, come up with something. The door opens from the street, and in walks this guy with a whalebone leg looking for Ishmael. And it's Ahab. <laughs> you know? And, and this guy's like... Uh, one thing he realizes, this guy is full of stories. I can get a ton of stuff out of him. I'm going to try, I'm going to offer to help him find his wife and kid who have since moved to New York because they thought he was dead. You know, so they left Nantucket. He's been to Nantucket, then they're gone, and he's come to New York to find them. And so this guy, George Harrow, who's the writer, helps uh-huh. him. At the same time, you know, you get, you're getting this written by a guy who writes outlandish stuff. So you never really know if it's like him juicing it up or it's actually what's happening, you know? But Ahab's a character. Yeah. Is this Did one... You see by... <laughs> Go, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
it. Is this one of those cases where you have to leave somewhere to be able to write about it, Jeff? You have to what? I'm sorry. You have to leave somewhere to be able to write about it because you used to live in that kind of that part of the world, Nantucket, around there, didn't you? No, I never lived up north like that. I, mean, I lived in New York and in, in New Jersey. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, I, I know Moby Dick really well. And the thing is, with this, with my book, is you don't really have to know it that well because uh, it comes clean in the book, comes out in the book that you know what 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 Ishmael told wasn't really what happened all the time. Mm-hmm. Some of it, it isn't, you know? So I get to play it fast and loose with what happens in the book. You know, uh, Dagu, who's one of the, the harpooners, the African harpooner, he sh- he's still alive, too. And he shows up in the book as a character. Living in uh, Seneca Village, up with, with uh, you know, Seneca Park. Yeah. So, I mean, that whole thing about, like, 1850s New York, which deals with some resonant things today. Opioid addiction, immigration, ah. and fake news. <laughs> <laughs> did you say, uh, first thing that comes to mind is, did, did you see that really strange film from last year or the year before called In the Heart of the Sea? I did see it, you know, and the thing is, I thought it was a stiff. I read the book, though. In I did not read the book was doing, yeah, because I know it's about the whale ship Essex, you know? The Essex, yeah. Uh, yeah, I read that book. It's a terrific book. But I thought the, the, I thought the movie was kind of kind of boring, although, you know, it had some cool stuff, and I watched it. Did you see it? I saw it. Well, the, the special effects in it were fine. I mean, it's one of those things where you think, why does, why does somebody think they can make a movie like that in the 21st century and get anybody to see it? What fascinated me was that the whole story was as told to Herman Melville. A really uninteresting character, as it turned out. Yeah, that was cool. That was a cool part. I, I, I thought that was a great part, too. I really I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Melville really hardly ended his into this, except for, like, the reference to, to uh, Bartleby and some other stuff. I got some Easter eggs in there for people who know that Melville, you know? Oh, good. But it's, you're yeah, right. For me, Gary, you and about a hundred other people. The thing is, is you don't have to know Moby Dick. All you really have to know is who Moby Dick is and Captain Ahab, a general sense of what he was about. But you know what the thing is? In Moby Dick, I always thought that Ahab wasn't really a person. I mean, there was a lot of sturm and drag with Ahab. It was, Uh. he was was always strutting and fretting, you know? And what this story does is it kind of makes him into a person. He has... Uh, you know, things that he loves, that he wants to do, things that he wants to achieve, wants to save his kid. His kid becomes addicted to opium and in a gang, and he wants to save him. And oh, bring, okay. You know, because the wife is actually dead. She's died from uh, smallpox. When, he, when they discover it. I, 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 I have a sort of hidden theory, and, and, and you're just feeding right into it at this moment. That, 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 <laughs> That Melville is one of the unacknowledged sources of American fantasy writers because, first of all, I'm sure you know the John Huston film of Moby Dick was written by Ray Bradbury. Yeah. And also we wrote a book about it. And you wrote a book about John Huston and the white, the, the something green water, white whale, something like that. Yeah. 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 I read it. And I think one of Peter Straub's best stories is a Bartleby story called Mr. Club and Mr. Cuff. Um, that's, so, that's a great story. 
Yeah, and so and, and Melville was one of these 19th century writers. You were mentioning people in the 60s or going back to Dickens, but Melville was always on the edge of the fantastic. I mean, Bartleby was Kafka before Kafka. Moby Dick is a fantasy novel if you really get down to it. Uh, and things like Pierre or The Ambiguities is one of the weirdest novels I've ever read. Well, that I read, too. That I read the I Slog Through Pierre, and you have these huge sections in the middle where he's spouting Plotinus. You know what I mean? I know. It's, it's, it's not a good novel. <laughs> but, you know, The Confidence Man is an awesome novel. Oh, absolutely. It's terrific. Yeah, you know, and uh, so... You know, I, I, I've, I've done a lot of reading, and I'm not like, I mean, I'm no scholar, but I'll tell you it was a great book by a guy who I'm not that enamored of, Harold Bloom. Did you ever see these collections he did in the book form of, like, certain characters in literature? Like, he does Satan in Paradise Lost, and, you know, and he does um, Ahab, he does... Uh, huh. Have you ever seen these things? I don't think I've seen these. What is this a series of books, or it's a book, or you buy them? Uh, oh. And what it has is just essays by a bunch of different critics going back to like the time of Melville up to the current day. I know Joyce Carol Oates has an essay in there. Uh, you know, different uh, writers have essays in there about all essays about about Ahab. I've got a hold of that book, and I never used anything from it. But just the multiplicity of ideas about the book and about, you know, uh, about this character was really energizing. Do you read a lot of that kind of scholarship and literary history and so Not forth? Not unless I have to. I read that. I read, uh, what's his name, Olson? Uh, you know, Moby Dick, his Moby Dick stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that kind of was kind of a pleasure to read. I don't read it all the time, though. I mean, I'd rather read fiction, you know. I read a lot of fiction. I don't. I also read a lot of uh, nonfiction, but it has nothing to do with scholarship or any of that stuff. No, I'm out of school now. Unless it's going to help me do a story. Well, what do you read for fun? Oh, like right now, I'm reading Fred Easton Ellis's The Informers. That's great. And what was weird is I just was reading it tonight, and I turned on, and American Psycho was on. <laughs> engaging movie, I think. I mean, better, much better than I ever gave it credit for when it came out. You know? um, what else am I reading? I'm reading a book about Van Eyck, who's a painter, and uh, a book by Kanazaki. Uh, One of these recent novels that came out that was from his youth. You know, I, I'm always reading stuff. I got a ton of, ton of stuff on the docket. Do you find you read more fiction than nonfiction? Yeah, much more fiction. I read a lot more fiction. I'll tell you what was one of my favorite recent reads was um, Tom Robbins' autobiography, Tibetan Peace Pie. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool. I don't know if you, you read Tom Robbins, but that was a cool book, actually. I like that one. I used to read him back in the day. Yeah, me too. I mean, I really. I did too. Him. I haven't read him recently. Uh, ben Laurie's book was good. I like his collection. You know, his well, he's another one of those writers that that basically fits nowhere, but uh, like you and, and Kelly and Mary Rickard and so forth and so on. But it seems that some of these writers come from the mainstream side of the uh, 
wasteland, no man's land, whatever you want to call it, this zone in between. And some of the writers... I think Ben is treated a little bit on the literary side. He gets more love on that side, I think, than yeah. you know, the genre side. All that stuff is artificial and, you know... Um, do, you read, do, do you read George Saunders? I love his stuff. I mean, I read. Did you read? Uh, did you read the Lincoln thing, man? I thought that was a blowaway book. The Lincoln thing is kind of amazing, and uh, I too. I mean, that definitely blew me away. That book. I mean, I couldn't put it down. You know, and I, I was wondering, Gary, do you know, are the quotes in there actual quotes from people, or is he making that shit up? I think some of the. I know some of them are, but I yeah. think some of them are made up. Uh, that's what I that's what I thought too. As a matter of fact, but that book is incredible. And look, you know what? I didn't see that one nominated for a World Fantasy Award uh, because it hasn't had the chance. It's a January twenty seventeen book, right? It can't. It's not eligible. Oh, next okay. Year. That would be why, don't you think? What's that? Don't you think it won't be eligible until twenty eighteen? Oh, maybe that's right. Yeah, maybe that's right. But I mean, it has the fa fantastic elements in it are like incredible. Oh yeah. Oh, you know this thing he dreamed up about what it's like, you know, in the dead graveyard where all these people are hanging out. Uh, the stuff that you know, the laws and the rules of that whole scene are incredible. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that impresses me when a essentially mainstream writer and Saunders has made it in the mainstream, but he certainly seems to have a sympathy with fantasy. But when a yeah. mainstream writer works out the rules of, in this case, the graveyard, I'm impressed because you realize. This is not just a metaphor. This is something he's worked out as though it could have been real. Exactly. That's what I loved about that book. So there, there are rules for the afterlife. And, and one of the things that irritates me, conversely, when a mainstream writer uh, gets into a fantastic trope, that, uh, the, that there sometimes there's a contempt for the details. And I'm not going to I, – I could name names. I, actually, I won't accuse Mar Margaret Atwood of doing this. But I think I would accuse P.D. James of not working through the details when she wrote Children of Men. Although it made a good movie. <laughs> it was not a bad movie. Uh, and it's not a bad premise, although Brian Aldiss, uh, who just passed away a week ago, was very irritated that essentially his graybeard was the same story worked out in much more science fictional terms. Huh. I didn't know that. Hmm. I'm not familiar with his work that much. You know? Yeah. I'm kind of curious, Jeff, it's been 10 years since you've had a novel out. You're just saying that Ahab's Return is coming out, I think it's next May it's coming out. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you feel like that's that you now have the the freedom, I guess, to return to longer work in, in, in the coming sort of years? Is that the plan? Well, I'd like to. I mean, that's my goal. I mean, I got, you know, the thing is that what happened was I threw a wrench into my work because I was popping out a book a year or every two years, you know. Yeah. 97 on. I mean, I could have really kept going, but this took up a lot of my time. Uh, I'd like to do, I, I really feel now like I have the time and I have the interest and I have the energy to do novels, you know, again. Um, um, yeah, I'd like to. I, I hope it's Continues. I mean, I hope this one's okay, and I hope people read it. And I, you know, the the novella thing. I'm working on a novella now too. For a, I can't say what it is, but um, I'm working on a novella for a publisher I've never published with before. But I admire their their press. You know, yeah. the press that they have. Um, 
All I'll tell you is this. I just read a book for it on cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there we go. All right. Uh, well, one of the things that the Twilight Pariah raises, it's a Tor.com novella, and Tor.com has certainly in some ways revived the whole notion of the novella as a viable form, although uh, some of these, uh, and, and yours comes in, at, I'm looking at it right now, comes in at, you know, 160 pages, which in 1960 could have been a mass market paperback novel. Right. I mean, I, when I talk about it, I call it a short novel, which I think it is. I mean, to me, a novella is, you know, anywhere from like uh, 80 to 100 pages, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I really think of it as a short novel. It's in chapters and stuff like that. Uh, they can call it whatever the hell they want, you know. I don't, you know, Tor.com has been revivifying, uh, you know, uh, my relationship with Dan Wellen and, um, you know, um, Irene Gallo, uh, with the artwork that she brings to it and the eye she brings to it. It's really, uh, I think, pretty incredible. Oh, they, yeah, they they look terrific, and they're they're online. They're also books, and yeah. Um, well, they're not online, Gary. I, no, they're not. They're, no, the of course books they're not, not online. online. No, they're not. Okay. They're, they're for sale as ebooks. Yeah, the novellas are are uh, okay. They're okay. Mine and uh, Stephen Graham Jones and those other ones there. Yeah, like three ninety nine for yeah, yeah, yeah. While I don't think at all it's true that Tor.com have revived the novella, I think that's one of the fictions that's going around. I think what they have done is they've actually managed to capture the short read market, and that's what's made them yep. so successful, and what's really made the the uh, whole program exciting. You've got this range of books. They're standalone books. They're not not short fiction. They're you know they're they're seen as this other thing, and they're packaged the way that a publisher would package novels, not as short fiction. And that seems to really have made a difference. I mean, it means that you get a real impact with readers that you maybe might not otherwise have done. I mean, that's I assume part of what attracted you to publishing the Twilight Pariah with them. Absolutely, and the thing is, it's like you know what adds to that is. They got good people behind it. They got you. They got Ellen. Uh, they got uh, Ann Vandermeer's doing yeah. you know, a couple of things too. So it's not like they just went and said, "All right, we're going to publish some short novels." They got good editors. They got you know good artwork uh, for the covers. So I mean, it's a, it's pretty quality stuff, you know. I think I think they're doing a nice. Well, yeah. As a reviewer, I'll say that it's not, not as a reviewer. As a reader, I always enjoyed novels that came in at. Uh, you know, 80,000 80, words, 60, 80,000 words, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and as a reviewer, it's nice you can get through more of them. But I want to challenge you, Jonathan, for a second as an anthologist, because you're right. Novellas have always been around. Uh, there are always a couple of novellas in your year's best, and sometimes novellas in your own anthologies. But don't you have to think about a novella that this is going to cost you maybe two or three short stories, and therefore it's at a premium? Whereas Tor.com, the novella, is the main product. Sure, for an anthology, I think that's true. But I think with the changes to the magazine market in the last five years, it's become much less true. We're now running to a situation where Asimov's and Analog can run several novellas in an issue. So therefore, you're getting far more novellas from them. There have always been okay. successful novella programs out there through PS Publishing, through Subterranean, through Tachyon, through Small Beer to a lesser degree. The, 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 a lot of people talk about 
Tor.com as being a novella success. And whilst on one level it is, I don't think it's actually in that sense a new thing, and I don't think that's what's interesting. I think what's strongly interesting is this idea that you tap into the short read market, you produce books. And I was thinking while you guys were talking about it, I'd be curious to know what you think. One of the most successful things in fiction in the last 15 years or so, or 20 years, has been the rise of the YA market. And one of the typical characteristics of the YA market is a single-strand plot. They tend not to invest in a lot of multiple you know, subplots and all that kind of thing. Right. And people, when they talked about well, they, the desirability of the YA market for adult fiction, well, that was one of the things that attracted them. And that's kind of what fits with this novella, with this short novel kind of approach, I think. Well, I mean, like, this, the, the Twilight Pariah is the closest I've ever come to writing a YA plot. Yeah. I mean, I wrote it really thinking about my comp, freshman comp students and what characters would they dig. A couple of pe- some people in college were maybe a couple of years older than them, you know? Mm. Uh, and that's young adult, but it's 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 in the range around there, you know. But Jonathan's always been a champion of short novels because he he had a, a anthology at the end of the year that published a couple of novels. I don't know how many issues of that did you put out. Oh, the- but I was saying Jonathan's always been a, a champion of short novels. I mean, how many issues of that short novel anthology? Did you- Put out. I put out four before the market sort of disappeared for it. And then, you know, Paula Garan had another go at the same thing. For some reason, that kind of book doesn't find a market, you know, never has. Uh, well, but- I mean, one of the, one of the, and this, this is something that goes back to anthologies. Groff Conklin did anthologies of short novels and so forth and so on. But a short novel as an individual product. Something like the Twilight Pariah, which I can hold in my hand and I'm doing right now. Like I say, it, it, it's a short novel. It's a novel. Yes. It's a product. It's something I can buy. It's not something I have to read in a collection of other short novels. No. Uh, so my, my sense is that the short novel market is, is completely different from the short story market and is a constricted version of the novel market. Well, you know, as I get older, I like seeing short novels. I do, too. I, I remember my <laughs> William John Watkins, I used to teach with him. He was a science fiction writer. And uh, and I remember him saying, Jeff, the shorter the better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but if you notice, um, I'll tell you somebody who's really keyed into this is uh, Nick Mamadis, who does a lot of, like, noir stuff, you yeah. know? Yeah. He really stays true to that form because... All of his no- recent novels, I mean, I can think of it almost like a series, like, you know, uh, they're all very, like, 100, less than 200 pages or 200 pages about, you know what I mean? And I think that's really cool. I mean, you could say a lot in 200 pages or 160 pages or something like that. I mean, basically all you really got to say, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think you're I, right. I, 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 no, I, I agree as well. I mean, if you got the old guys like Jim Thompson, his books are only like 150 to 200 pages, or uh, what's the other guy's name? Goodich? Uh, sure. Uh, but it's also true of all of the Ice Doubles. It was true of the early Sherry Tepper. It's true of even the early CJ Cherry. It's true of a whole bunch of stuff that came out in the 60s and 70s. That was the sort of length that they that they, they pitched for. It, it, it worked. It was economical. And it was something which readers embraced. I mean, I remember when... You know, June was the thick, the, the longest science fiction book out there, just about, and now it looks like a oh, novella almost itself. 
and it's and, and it, it's uh, very genre friendly. Yeah, you can carry that with you to work and read a couple pages, and you can finish it by the end of the week. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I remember ta- I talking to Aldous Budras about this, who was an editor at a number of paperback houses. And when I was a kid, there were two kinds of paperbacks. There were the slightly taller ones, which were Signet and Valentine, and the slightly shorter ones, which were Avon and Ace. And an and Avon or Ace novel was 192 pages, and the Signet or Valentine novel was 160 pages, based entirely on production costs. <laughs> and writers like Theodore Sturgeon were perfectly happy to write to those lengths. Happy accident. Go ahead. At Shakespeare, right? Happy accident. Absolutely. Uh, but it also, I think, disciplined writers in a way that uh, the the five and six hundred page per volume trilogies didn't. And there's a place for them, too. I mean, you know, you, sometimes you just got to have six hundred pages. But well, yeah. I try to get older. It's tougher and tougher to read something really that long uh, unless it's so fucking compelling. Like, I got to read it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I guess, sort of, before we sound too old and crusty and sort of too much in love with sort of, you know, sort of the good old days, we probably should bring this to, to a conclusion. We sort of, you know, to run through for sort of our, our usual hour. But so it's probably a good time to sort of pause. Maybe we'll come back and have a chat when Ahab's return comes out, which would, would be fun. good. Um, I really appreciate you having me on, and I'd love to come back and talk about that. We'll definitely do that. But until then, first of all, congratulations on The Twilight Pariah. Thank you. And thank you so much. Congratulations. Congratulations again on your multiple Shirley Jackson and World Fantasy Awards. Well, I mean, I just got, I'm just nominated for the World Fantasy. I I don't have any hope of winning that. But you know what, Gary? At my age, it's like, it's at this stage of the game, it's great just to be in the running. You've got a bunch of World Fantasy Awards already. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what the thing is? I want one of these new ones. Oh, yeah. oh the new ones, yeah. You know, I hate Lovecraft, although I do love the fact that um, Gay and Wilson made these statues. I mean, I have to give props to that, but, you know, I'm not a big Lovecraft fan by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And when I saw Sophia Samatar stand up there and give that speech a couple of world fantasies ago, I was like, yeah. I really want to be part of that if I possibly can at some point, you know, and get one of these things. But uh, it's great to see the change. It really is. Yeah. The best, and I think it's actually really the right thing to do. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think so. Well, on that cheery note, thank you very much, and we shall talk to you again soon. All right, thanks, Jonathan. Gary, I'll see you in San Antonio. I'll see you in San Antonio at World Fantasy. Good luck. Thanks, you guys. Okay. And 